0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Look upon yourself, whispers the old man. At my full height, I see my movements reflected in the gleaming panel. I am tall and thin, very tall. My face is smooth, chin dimpled, eyes sharp and predatory over a straight nose. Ringed in brown curls of hair, my face is only crudely human. My lower lip is pulled to the side, slightly disfigured. I am not wearing clothes. Instead, my chest and arms are layered in beaten metal banding, with occasional tight swaths of leather tidily placed underneath. A winking light haunts the depths of my brown eyes, and I now understand why the old man has awe in his voice. My son, he asks. Yes, I reply. What is the first thing? The first thing? Flexing my fists again, I feel an unyielding strength in my metal bones. I'm so much bigger than this small old man. In your mind, reach inside and tell me the first thing, the first word you ever knew. What is your word, my son? I find a hard honesty to the limits of my body to the solid press of my flesh and the clinching strength of my grip. Pushing into my mind, I search for the answer to his question and find another principle, incontrovertible, even stronger than that of my flesh. It is the reason for my being, a singular purpose hewn into the stone of my mind. There is a word that is the shape of my life. I set my eyes upon the old man, and the leather of my lips scratches as I say the word out loud for the first time. Pravda, I say. I am the unity of truth and justice. Daniel H. Wilson is
0: the best-selling author of robopocalypse Robogenesis, Amped, A Boy in His Bot. How to Survive a Robot Uprising, Where's My Jetpack, How to Build a Robot Army, the Mad Scientist Hall of Fame, and Brojitsu, the martial art of sibling smackdown. He's a Cherokee citizen and has a Ph.D. in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University. His new novel is The Clockwork Dynasty. Thank you for joining me, Daniel.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
0: This is a book that starts with a dive into deep time the idea that our world is a lot older than we think it is that there are, in that age there might conceal things that we do not believe to be possible and this starts out with a young woman in the modern day she's researching the history of ancient
1: automatons this is a real history isn't it yeah so she was inspired uh, well so this moment at the beginning of the book was inspired by uh this Artifact, this automaton that was found in the 20s called Maillardet's Draftsman. And it was just a box of junk, had been burned up in a fire and uh, lost for a hundred years. And it went to a museum, and they slowly, over the course of 10 years, put it together. And these gears and, and all of his junk came together and manifested itself as a little boy sitting at a desk with his fingers uh, poised to hold a pen. So they wound him up, and they put a pen in his fingers, and he started drawing pictures and writing poems. And this thing was a couple hundred years old, you know. So at the very end, with a flourish, it signed off, you know, written by the automaton of Mayer Day. And just like that, you know, this mystery was solved. And and it really, these these true-to-life court automatons really inspired me. You know... Uh, there's um so many
0: of those too. There, you refer to them later on. I I love the ducks,
1: <laughs> Valkinson's ducks. Yeah, yeah, Valkinson was a very interesting fellow. Yeah. So Valkinson, what uh, came around? I think uh, let's see. He was the mid seventeen hundreds, and so he was pretty recent. You know, so what's interesting is these stories about people building lifelike machines or androids or robots. They go all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of written history. You know, you've got like. Uh, Greek gods who are Hephaestus is building tripods that serve the gods on Mount Olympus. But you don't start getting artifacts until more in more recent history. And so Valkinson is interesting because his his artifacts are still around. you know, people have found them and tried to put them back together, including this duck whose famous move was to, Uh, Eat breadcrumbs and then poop, (laughs) Uh, which, by the way, amazed crowds of thousands and thousands in Paris and made Valkinson very wealthy, as it turns out. Uh, You know, for me, uh, part of the deep dive in time in this
0: is, to me, this is a book represents the pinnacle of what H.P. Lovecraft was writing about. And I want to read a quote to you here. It's the quote, it's not Lovecraft himself, but he used it to great effect at the beginning of his most famous story, The Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. It reads, Of such great powers or beings there may conceivably be a survival, a survival of a hugely remote period when, Conscious was manifested, perhaps, in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms for which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and Mm -hmm. called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. That's Algernon Blackwood. Wow. That's slumbering gods. Yeah. Slumbering gods. And this idea, we're hearing a little bit more about this. I was talking earlier about Deep Time and the idea that we've in a, we've made these amazing advances essentially in the last 150 years mm-hmm. and we in our hubris
1: believe that nobody before us could ever have made such yeah. an
0: advance that's yeah. maybe
1: not the case yeah you know that's that's the place where i've been and it's so i've you know studied robotics i spent a lot of time sort of Loving technology and being very interested in the next iteration and what comes next and the cutting edge and all that, and kind of ignoring this fact that we've had we've had Homo sapiens around for more than a hundred thousand years and we've got maybe five thousand years of history and there's a lot of blank time out there. A lot of geniuses were born, a lot of amazing things were created, and when I started, you know, this all started because I was researching why we're afraid of robots you know i get asked that a lot mm-hmm. i wrote robopocalypse people want to know wh- why this fear why this fascination and i started studying automatons and and i started realizing that a we've been as human beings cross-culturally and throughout all the ages that we have written records of we've been obsessed with building machines that replicate l- living things including ourselves and b we've been terrified of those things <laughs> <laughs> for all those years, for for the last, whatever you know, it's inherently scary. And and what I love about it is it gets to the crux of it. It gets to the paradox that's at the root of all technology, which is the fire can burn you or it can warm you up and it can be good or evil. And it's something we struggle with now and something that we've always struggled with as a tool-building species, you know. um, It's it's good that we struggle with it because otherwise we would have killed ourselves by now if we weren't <laughs> afraid of our creations. Um, And so looking back, I started to see... Uh, I started to look at this fear that we've had and these, these artifacts that we've built, and I realized that our ancestors had great triumphs. And then my imagination started going, and I started thinking, you know, what if some of these triumphs are still walking among us, you know, hidden and um, disguised as human beings? And that's where this novel came from. Uh,
0: at the beginning, our our heroine, June unearth a very particular robot and, and I think that you do a <laughs> what you talked about the, yep. the real- life example you talked about clearly mm-hmm. informs it so tell us a little bit about
1: June and her quest sure so June Stefanoff is an is an anthropologist but essentially she's she's kind of a roboticist mm-hmm. um, because what she does is she finds these old artifacts and she puts them back together and what I love about Meyer Day's draftsman is that you can think of it as like this message, like this this message in a bottle from distant past, you know. It's a and, time capsule. Yeah, and it shows up and it's not you're not putting it together. You're not just looking at the ruins and imagining it. You're seeing what they saw. You know, it's doing what it did then. And there's something really magical to me about that. And so that's how this novel begins, is June puts together an automaton. Another thing that's interesting about these automatons is When they were created in history, they were the the pinnacle of technology, right? These things were really expensive. They were built by the the smartest people on the planet. And as a result, they were very valuable and they were given typically as gifts. They're called court automatons and they were given to kings and queens and emperors and not always in a nice way. So, (laughs) you know, Mayer Day's draftsman, there was another one that was identical that wrote poems in Chinese and it was sent to the Chinese emperor and you can imagine that this is a little bit of a, a gift, and it's also a demonstration of what of what the technological prowess of of the people that made it, right? The Europeans. So, you know, there's there's a lot of intrigue. Also, these things w- would be put into Wunderkammen, these mm-hmm. wonder rooms or these cabinets of curiosity, and and so they were hoarded. They were put aside. They were, you know, they're very rare, and they often have been destroyed or dismantled, and so. She's got this very Indiana Jones job, right? Mm-hmm. But she's still studying artifacts. And the way that the novel begins is she finds a message that she was never meant to hear uh, in one of these artifacts, and it really draws her into this hidden world. But, um, yeah, so that's how, that's how she starts. The way, what I love about her is she's a scientist, right? And, and for her, you know, the, the real draw into this very dangerous world that she's going into is the awe of discovery, the wonder that you feel whenever you realize that all your assumptions you know, only scratch the surface of what you're really looking at. And the way I think of it a little bit is you know, in Jurassic Park, when the paleontologist has been studying bones his whole life and then he sees a dinosaur walk past and you think, Wow, you know, what would that feel like to study these things for so long and then see the real deal? And, and this is kind of what June goes through. She studies these automatons and then she's drawn into this world where she realizes there are human-like machines that have been around for a really long time, you know, and they're walking, talking versions of this. Um, and so so really her journey is a journey of, of discovery and trying to figure out how much she's willing to risk in order to gain this knowledge. And to tell the truth, that's the journey of the reader, too. You know, so when I was writing this novel, I, I had this sort of existential moment where I was like, why do we read? What's the point of it? You know, like <laughs> we read for pleasure, right? Exactly. And yes. I thought to myself, what? Then, Daniel, if we read for pleasure, what is the pleasure of this novel? What is the pleasure? You know, what is the thing about it? And I realized it was wonder. It was the awe of revealing the, that the world is more complex and mysterious than you thought it was. And so that's how I constructed this novel was so that you reach you're constantly discovering, and then you occasionally reach these cathartic plateaus where you go, "Oh, no way <laughs> <laughs> Everything yeah, and you, and you and it recast you've learned something that r- makes you rethink everything you've learned so far. And of course, I couldn't help but to do that also on the very last page, <laughs> which you know uh, maybe isn't the most fair thing to do to a reader. But I wrap up the novel, and then I and then I try to blow everyone's mind one more time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you know, you were talking about awe, and to me, this gets also to another really essential aspect of the work of Lovecraft, which is, and I think that's something that you share in this book. Which is that the flip side of awe is terror, <laughs> horror, and, yeah, <laughs> and horror. And, and this is something you do a lot in Robogenesis, mm-hmm. one of the most terrifyingly horrific books I've ever <laughs> squirmed my way through reading. Yep. <laughs> but uh, here you you uh, lean a little bit harder on the awe side, but still, I think that that idea of awe and terror. Um,
1: because we're scared of what we don't know. If we don't know something, well, it terrifies us. Do you remember, you know, your earliest dreams when you're a kid? And there are those moments in your head that you can't distinguish from memory necessarily, except you get older and you go, well, that couldn't have been. There was never a rocket separating in the sky right above my house when I was a kid. But, but that feeling, you know, and that's kind of what I was going for. Th- those feelings are scary, but they're also exhilarating. Um, and a lot of that comes not from plot. It's not from, oh, this action happened or something like that. It's, it's from exquisite detail, you mm-hmm. know, surreal details about the world. So that's, that's how I think a lot of times. And that's how scenes form in my head before I... That make me excited enough to slog through writing a novel for a couple of <laughs> years. Like I had a scene in my head of a robot that had been dis- sort of disintegrated, left in the woods, and it was alive, and it was a, looked like a 12-year-old girl in an abandoned mansion playing a harpsichord in a destroyed conservatory alone for miles with just songbirds, you know, and just shattered glass around her feet that were made of porcelain. And, and like, that image came to me, and I just thought, so haunting, you know, it's just so surreal and interesting. I just I want to know why she's there. I want to do this, you know. And that's what really pulls me through it as a writer is I I get those magical scenes and then I got to find out <laughs> how to get there and how to make it make sense and be compelling. Well, I have to say that
0: the, the plotting in this book is masterful. And okay. it, it, the, it, it, the plotting really uh, – you use the plotting, I think, for a more uber purpose of like – the turns in the plot allow us to make comparisons and see things happen and get wrapped up in the events in a way that twist your brain around. So one second you're looking at things at ninety degrees and then you're <laughs> two
1: seventy going. Uh oh, this is really different than I yeah. expected. Yeah, I mean that that stems from the underlying theme of of the novel, which is that humanity gives technology purpose right like there is no meaning for a tool if there's not a person to use it and mm-hmm. and so kind of you know what i did narratively was i chose a structure in which i tell the story in the past and then i tell the story in the present and then i go back and and each one informs the the next so you you read the past and you and you think one thing and then you see that same character maybe alive hundreds of years later and you see them in the present, and you know a little something, you understand maybe why this happens, but then something else surprises you, and then you go back to the past again, and you understand it. And it's a uniquely novelistic narrative. You couldn't really do it in a uh, movie or even a comic book, and that's really why this had to be a novel. It had to manifest itself as a novel um, because (laughs) that's the way the story appeared, you know. Um, You were talking about tools, uh, uh yes, <laughs> the 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 tool that makes this novel work is narrative. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> right. And I'm sorry. I had to get back to my, I kind of trailed off. So so, in in this novel, these, these these machines each have a word that they have to fulfill. It's their purpose. And what's interesting is uh, the word changes based on what age of humanity you're in. So you think about. Logic, <laughs> <laughs> or you think about bravery. You mm-hmm. know what does it mean to be brave? Well, now it means something very different than it might have meant a hundred years ago, or two hundred, or a thousand. And so, what happens is these machines are constantly hitting a moving target in terms of finding their meaning. And so, you're talking about seeing the world from different angles. You know, in the past. The machines are doing one thing, and and it seems very simple. You know, all you have to do is be logical, right? And then you see the same machine 400 years later, and you realize it's behaving totally differently, you know, because it's satisfying a different um, meaning of that word. You, you talked about this ha-
0: image that haunted you of, of the <laughs> of the girl robot, and I think that's such a wonderful trope, and it, it brought to mind, uh, I mean... This is something that I think science fiction writers really like is the idea of an ageless child. Yeah, uh, it, it's something that's you know, uh, is it Aldous or uh, there's a uh, um, uh, it's from AI. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: okay, we yeah. have
0: a lot of these ageless children. So talk about creating the character of eight of your ageless child and yeah. um, bringing her through the
1: ages, as it were. Yeah. So her name's Elena and she is revived put back together in 1700s Russia alongside her brother Peter who is a huge warrior a big guy modeled after Peter the Great so he's he's physically very imposing and she's a 12-year-old girl and and she at first her face is made of porcelain you know they have to hide from people and so uh, th- their whole existence is very tenuous and they disguise themselves as father and daughter, even though they're s- siblings. And you know, the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people, including me, is Interview with the Vampire. You think mm-hmm. of the child vampire, Claudia. Exactly. And and you think about that relationship they have. And first of all, just texturally, just the beauty of Interview with the Vampire, I just love. I love the descriptions. I love all of that. And I hope that I reach that level of of organic, like just lace curtains in the wind, you know, just so (laughs) great. But, but that's not actually what inspired me um, for Elena. What really inspired me with her was my daughter. I have a seven-year-old daughter and I want to protect her so much. And I am, as soon as, uh, maybe when she was four, I started realizing that the process of letting go had already begun. You know, it was the moment when she wouldn't let me tuck her in. She needed to pull the covers up to her chin herself. And I've written a lot about that feeling. I I wrote a short story called The Blue Afternoon That Lasted Forever. That's on. um, It's actually available online. Um, And it covers that very specifically. And by the way, don't read that one in public because there's a solid chance it'll make you burst into tears. (laughs) It's such a sad story. Um, But uh, so this process of me learning to trust my daughter... And my, my oldest child and my first child, you know, as she gets older, this is really what inspired Elena. And, and there's a moment where you feel like as a parent, you're like a launch pad, you know, and the rocket's going to take off and you're going to get burnt up and left behind. And, <laughs> and, and I, I see, see that great analogy. <laughs> I sort of see that moment, you know, on the horizon for me. And, and it's going to be such a bittersweet time and i think a lot about it and and that's really you know that's that's the evolution of the relationship between peter and elena i mean they have life or death stakes they she's constantly judged for looking like a child but she's the smartest person you know around she's she's her her word is logica and she's just um very dialed in and it's all about peter learning to let go of her in order to keep her you know so <laughs> It's, and, and you know, again, I'll tell you that whole relationship of them also spawned from a single... Usually I have maybe three or four scenes in my head that I know I love. And there's a scene where he's holding her in his arms late in the book, mm-hmm. which is pretty, uh, you know, it's meant to be a heart-wrenching scene. And it's meant to explain a lot. and And that was a scene I had in my head very early on. And I knew that everything was stemming from that moment, you know. So anyway, you have to read in order to uh, figure out why Peter feels so protective over over his sister.
0: Well, I want to talk about just the general form of this book, which is uh, it's a secret history. Mm -hmm. And this is a really interesting genre because it's not an alternate history. History hasn't been changed. It's just that you the element of the fantastic and the imagination is is that there are things going on behind the scenes that we haven't ever noticed, yeah. and I think this is a, a an interesting uh, genre in part because you set yourself a very tough goal in terms of going through bits of history. So talk about just as you decide to write a secret history, how did you decide what bits of our long history from The year zero till now, you would include as part of the plot of your book.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm a novelist, so (laughs) I sit around all day by myself, and I I get to do what I want. You know, this, by the way, is why novels are so great. Uh, Because for the last few years, you know, it's been three years since my last novel came out, Robogenesis. Mm -hmm. I've been writing comic books, which means collaborating with an artist and editors. You know, I've been writing screenplays, which means collaborating with everybody and their mother. And then, you know. Novels, oh, oh, sweet, sweet novels. I just do what I want. <laughs> I, I got very interested in Peter the Great. Uh, I'm, I, I love the, you know, I that part of the book. I, I read a biography of Catherine. Yeah, she's amazing.
0: She's an amazing person, and yeah. your replication of that history was wonderful.
1: Well, uh, there's a novel. I mean, there's a nonfiction book called Peter the Great that mm-hmm. uh, is amazing. Who's and, the writer? I can't remember, but I think I mean it won I'm every award that you could. Can... Pretty sure it's the guy, same guy who wrote
0: the Catherine
1: biography. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it is because yeah. it, it was an amazing, amazing book. Uh, yeah, so I fell in love with that. I mean, I think partially the reason, looking back on it, why I'm interested in that so much mm-hmm. is uh, Peter the Great did this amazing thing. He modernized Russia. He went to Europe and he got a thousand scientists and he brought them back to Russia and he just threw out every. Old convention and just and just rewrote the rules for an entire nation and they did not like it, <laughs> but he's a very strong-willed personality. Um, and you know, I'm from Oklahoma, used to be Indian territory. Uh, I've just always been fascinated by the clash of civilizations and the role that technology plays. And I especially love moments in history when whole nations modernize their technology overnight in order to survive. And that's really what Peter was doing, and and it just seems like such an amazing, transformative, human thing. And it's so easy to map onto like aliens, you know. Like, <laughs> not that there are any aliens in this novel, by the way. So just don't be guessing about aliens the whole time. There aren't any. I don't really. My my rule about there's no cr- kingdom of the crystal skull happening here. Oh, good. Um, my rule with with my fiction is I just ask you to swallow one thing. Mm-hmm. And I will not add another thing. So, if it's if it's human-like robots that were created before in prehistory, there's not going to also be time travel. <laughs> I'm not going to also throw aliens in or anything else like that. Just the one thing, and then and then you're with me. Um, so yeah. Now, uh, however, uh, when you uh,
0: create uh, robots created in prehistory, you actually get time travel.
1: I <laughs> <by laughs> virtue of the fact that they live so long. It's just yeah. time travel in real time. Well, I mean. It, you know, also, <laughs> you're talking about secret history and, and what sets it apart, which mm-hmm. is you layer in whatever your change is, but it results in the same outcome. And mm-hmm. so, you know, one thing that's really fun that I, I honestly did not realize this until I was at a barbecue <laughs> uh, two weeks ago. And a friend of mine said this to me. Uh, robo apocalypse. Technology kills everybody, right? Technology destroys civilization. In this book... The Clockwork Dynasty, it's a secret history in which these robots have been around for for eons, and they don't know how to repair themselves. Whatever civilization made them is gone. And what they want desperately is for our civilization to reach a point of technological ability that we will understand these robots and be able to repair them. And so they are quite intentionally forcing us into a technological future, the one that we're in now. So right? this is a kind of an inverse... inverse it is, it is a apocalypse It's a reverse apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> um, the robots are building our society instead of tearing it down, which isn't necessarily without conflict, you know, because these robots have different ideas about how society and civilization is built. And for instance, you may have noticed that war drives technology. And so, um, you know, a lot of... These robots have different ideas about um, how to push humankind forward technologically, and and some of them believe that... Uh, well, it just makes more conflicts. Yeah, <laughs> cooking up some... Uh, what is it that they say in Princess Bride? You know, we're starting a war. It's a long and glorious tradition or something like that. Uh, uh,
0: well, it's one we, we don't seem to be giving up end times. No, <laughs> no, no unfortunately. You know, um, uh, there were... One of the parts of this book I I, I liked most was set during uh, the uh, times of the uh, tea company. Mm -hmm. East Uh, India. India? East India Tea Company. I love that there's a portion of the narrative there. And this took me, as I was reading this, I could not help but be rocketed back into my own past. 1996, I think, I'm taking my I'm in the habit of taking my sons who are rather young to movies that are somewhat inappropriate for them. <laughs> see, I remember taking them to see Blade and and they they were like in 6th grade and Tracy Lords
1: is walking in and being drenched with blood. Bad idea maybe. I remember loving that movie because they caught a vampire and they gave it an autopsy in order to figure out how to kill it and I was like, "Yes, finally. <laughs> right. That's smart. Yeah. That makes sense to me." Yeah. Good, good job. Now, the movie that I took my kids to see that this brought
0: back was a movie that was marketed kind of as a B movie, but really had an absolutely sterling cast and uh, screenwriter, William Goldsman. It was a book called, or uh, a movie called The Ghost in the Darkness.
1: Oh, and that's about the the, the man-eating lion, right? The or man-eating, man-eating tiger, yeah, yeah,
0: man-eating lions. <laughs>
1: yeah, I saw that. That was horrifying, wasn't it? <laughs> it was it?
0: terrifying. Yeah. And, and I think there's a – did you
1: realize that there you were kind of like uh, duplicating a bit of the plot in it? This uh, n- book. No, I actually, I didn't think about that movie. I had seen it, mm-hmm. um, but it's just that. So so I had a robotic character that's fighting with the East India Tea Company, with the British army, essentially, in India, colonial India. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to find a conflict that was the uh, occurring at the right time mm-hmm. um, to fit with everything that was going on. And also one that made him question what... Pravda really is and what truth and honor really means and whether serving a sovereign and doing the bidding of some king is really worth it. Because all that colonial expansion wasn't about anything except money. And, mm-hmm. and nations fighting proxy wars, the great game, right? And And so once I put them there, I also had started thinking a lot about how these robots would find each other, because they're all hidden from each other because they're dangerous. And so they're to one another as well as humans, to each other, yeah, especially to each other, yeah. and and uh, and definitely to humans, <laughs> who they see come and go, you know. So they don't have a a super high regard for human <laughs> life, um, although they respect civilization and its you know mass. So what I realize is that they're superhuman, and so whenever they, uh, whenever there's a story about somebody who survived something impossible to survive or a hero who who rushes into the bunker and and you know saves all of his comrades you realize hmm that seems sort of superhuman like did did the person that pulled that off you know was that a person or was that somebody with maybe a little bit of extra ability you know like one of these machines and so i realized that heroes and legends they would they would create legends everywhere they go and so i needed to find a legend that would fit and the uh the the indian sepoys the 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 conscripted forces of India that fought for France and fought for uh, England uh, were horrified of of man-eating tigers and lions because they literally came from villages where these were concerns. <laughs> and so, uh, so, yeah, I have, there's a part in there where he sneaks out of a siege, uh, which was a real siege, the siege of Arcot, mm-hmm. or Arco, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, which I based everything. I mean, there are maps of that. There are eyewitness it seems accounts. Really, uh, it's beautifully rendered because I could really see all those scenes. I did a lot of research on that and and really dialed it in. And, and whenever you find a real battle, what's fascinating is there's reams and reams of of research, and you can really get it and get into it. You know, and so <laughs> the Battle of Plassey, and there were a lot of battles that I researched and then put in uh, to the book. Except, obviously, it's a secret history, so some some of these soldiers were not quite human, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so so he, he goes out and he savages these soldiers at night in order to create, uh, and makes it look like a lion has been attacking them, or a tiger, um, in order to create a legend, and sure enough, uh, it attracts attention from other machines pretty soon after. So, I really like the
0: feel of these characters, particularly Peter, I think, and what is, interests me, you were talking about civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, the robots regard the automatons regard human civilization as the only thing worth that's interesting to them about humans. Yeah. I, individually, humans are not so interesting. They don't live very long. They're kind of messy, and they're easily exterminated. But yeah. when more two, or one or more humans get together, they do something that they can't do alone, which is civilization. And, and to this extent, that's one kind of intelligence. And then each of the your Uh, automatons has its own kind of intelligence driven by the different word that informs its being Mm -hmm. and this uh, speculation I love this idea look and you do this also in Robogenesis this is something you're interested in we as humans we all see one another as being pretty much like ourselves only like the people we see around us are slightly less better than us (laughs) (laughs) To a certain extent, unless we're really jealous and they say, "Okay," yeah. <laughs> but um, human intelligence is not the only form of intelligence in this world, or need not be. That isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, so first of all, I love looking at humanity from this perspective of an alien anthropologist. You know, so as mm-hmm. a roboticist, if you're going to recreate human ability, like stuff that comes supernaturally to us, stuff we learn when we're like two or three, like Speech and speech recognition, gesture recognition, all this stuff—you really speech synthesis—you have to look at people and then just go, okay, forget that I'm a human. Let's just break this down. How do you really recognize speech? Okay, like waveforms. All right, like and, and and that in that way, you have to disregard everything you know because we don't really know it. It's it's being done for us by parts of our brain that have been evolving for. Uh, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, And so you really gain also a respect for the things that humans do. And so that's an individual human, you know. What was really fun here, and I've done that before in Robopocalypse, I have 902 looking at people and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what they're doing and why they're baring their teeth at each other or whatever they happen (laughs) to be doing. But with this novel, it's more about looking at the 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 whole mass of humanity to all together from the perspective of an alien anthropologist and being really surprised that this civilization falls out of this chaotic interactions <laughs> that we have with each other you know how in the hell does that trick get pulled off right I mean we do it though we've always done it and 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 it's part of us and so that's really what they marvel at in terms of looking at humanity and you know and they have they have been around for a long time and they were built for a reason by people. And that's the thing they can't forget. You know, they're superior to individual human beings, but they don't have civilization and they don't have the ability to procreate and the ability to, to sort of do what we do. And so at the same time, they're both superior to us and completely dependent on us for, for meaning, for the continued existence of their race, and and it's just a really interesting dynamic, and and again, it boils down to an underlying theme, that I don't believe any technology that we have, uh, from a toaster up to an autonomous, you know, walking talking robot with natural language processing, none of it has any meaning without people, right? Tools exist to within the context of humanity. I'm not going to say tools exist to serve humanity or anything like that, because I don't know, right? But I do know that if there are no people around, you just get nothing, a nihilistic. There's a great short story called For a Breath I Terry by Mm Zelazny, in which it's a post-human world and all these robots are just skating over the remains of this civilization and they don't care. You know, they're just doing their thing. They know that people built them in the distant past and that the people are all dead, right? And then finally, one robot, they, they skate through these cities filled with corpses and Ancient, you know, it happened a long time ago. One robot rebuilds a human body just so he can sort of experience the world the way a human would, right? And he puts his brain in the body and he looks around and he suddenly realizes how horrible and sad this is. And it's like that moment where the world gains meaning. Mm-hmm. And and I love it. He, It's that liminal spot where he crosses over from nihilistic just building to build you know existing to exist to 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 create to conjuring a human into the world and and realizing that that it me- it meant something you know all these dead people mean something uh anyway it's something i'm really interested in um this I, humanist idea you know? well i think that uh
0: for me one, uh, one of the the powers of your work is as much as you're known as the robot guy <laughs> <laughs> i guess uh, i think that what informs your work first and foremost is of a vision of humanity and to that end in this book the lovely prose the many great descriptions and set pieces and, and these things that just evoke there's a lot of really emotional writing in this and it's kind of sweet this book has a a, a for all the scenes of terror and many <laughs> and many Exciting uh, scenes where characters are threatened and terrorizing mm-hmm. and <laughs> uh, there's a kind of a sweetness in this book.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that over the years I've gotten away from being the guy with the PhD in robotics. You know, it's been ten years. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a I'm a writer now. Like I'm looking, I'm on this ship setting sail as a writer, and I look back to shore. You know, and like I don't <laughs> see the shore anymore. Uh, so I'm out here. You know, I, I don't think there's any going back. And as a result, you know, I think the writing has, has evolved. I'm more interested in, you know, in getting into the characters' heads and really understanding them and doing more character development. Um, and, and, you know, again, this idea that I was just talking about, that technology has no meaning without people. Like, nobody wants to see your vacation photos if there's not faces <laughs> in them, right? It's just objects. That really goes double for everything I write, you know, because no one cares about giant spaceships flying through space. It's about people, you know, it's about how it matters emotionally. It's a What's really interesting to me is that there are only so many human relationships, right? Like you can quantify them. I don't, I haven't, but I should. You can be a parent. You start out as a child. You can be an uncle, an aunt, a grandma, a nephew. There's like, there's a finite number of these things and each of these is a vector for caring (laughs) for making a story that matters all Mm -hmm. of these interactions you can imagine each human as a dot and these relationships are lines between the dots and there's only so many lines right and and that's what matters that's the structure that holds you know a novel together or any type of story and so you know that's important to remember whenever you're Doing a lot of world building. Are you really interested in all these crazy robots that you keep cooking up? Um, it's like, <laughs> it's like how is this an echo of the underlying relationship, the underlying theme? You know. So, for instance, like the embodiment of Peter and Elena as a father and a daughter, or as as siblings, but one as a child and one as an adult. I mean, that's not just arbitrary. That's there because I had a theme I wanted to explore. You know, and I I wanted to talk about letting go and. What that means over hundreds of years, and and whenever you're isolated in in a world where you're different from everyone, and and you know, so that's not an accident, you know, it's it's there on purpose. Well, also too, it speaks to the
0: great power of fantastic of uh, novels that. In- incorporate uh, elements of the fantastic where you can take something like your father-daughter relationship and then re-spin it into something that lasts hundreds of years. So as a reader, we become invested in these characters. And 200 pages later, when this some penultimate moment arrives, you're just really awestruck
1: by the the power of it. It is really fun to be able to twiddle those knobs (laughs) in science fiction. You say, well, how long... Has he been devoted to protecting her? You know, if you know, and then you go, well, let's make it five hundred years. Let's make it a thousand. You know, like if you can pull it off, then yeah, you get all of that extra weight, and it's pretty amazing. You know, Highlander does this really well. This guy mm-hmm. killed my, you know, he killed my mentor like five hundred years ago. We got beef, man. You know, like, <laughs> this has been this has been a long time coming, and like I love that. That's that's a really fun. Um, way to to raise the stakes you know and so um, it's definitely something that I do in this novel and it just makes everything sort of matter more you know because you pull it off and you realize these people have been friends for for centuries and they'll go a hundred years without seeing each other and then they'll see each other and be reunited and you know it's it's amazing there's a part <laughs> yeah there's a lot of that with Peter and Elena you know when they, well, whenever I mean? they part and whenever they come together
0: it's a fascinating look, too, at the way we conceive of family because our our human conception of family is very, very specifically those to whom I'm genetically attached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's something that's driven by evolution. We really can't change that. On the other hand... Um, One hundred thousand years of evolution and uh, civilization, which we were talking about earlier, have allowed us to begin to redefine families of, you know, well, there's the family that you're given and the family that you choose. And that's kind of uh, those kind of ideas rattle through this, too, because of these relationships uh, that the robots have, not just with each other, but with uh, the humans around them as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I especially like how June interacts with, with these machines. You know, I love her. She's a really interesting character. <laughs> she's very practical. Mm-hmm. You know, She's a scientist. And so a lot of this is kind of horrifying. When someone gets their skin ripped off and they don't have blood, they don't have flesh and bone underneath, that would horrify most people, but not her. You know, this is fascinating to her like she she's got cool no problem stitching up this you know these people and and figuring out what's underneath their skin i mean it's like a topic that's very interesting to her that's what i really like about her you know is that she is on she's in this for the discovery and for the the wonder um and of course you know she didn't sign up to get killed she doesn't <laughs> and she realizes pretty quickly that they don't that these people that these machines look like people but they don't think like people and they have their own artifacts and their own languages and their own histories and their own secrets and um and it's dangerous you know and so there's a trade-off at some point where you say enough curiosity killed the cat you know i want (laughs) to and the question is whether she will you know whether she'll or whether she'll be a hero (laughs) Uh This novel also uh, uses a a
0: technique that I really, really love, which is to say that people who are engaged in any act, anybody who engages in activity and invests a lot of effort into it, they generally think they're doing it not just for their own benefit, but also for the benefit. Everybody's going to be better as a result of this. Mm -hmm. And this is true as to whether you're Henry Ford uh, building, you know, uh, a better automobile, or maybe if you're their Fuhrer, building <laughs> a better nation. You have an
1: ideology, yeah. Yeah, you, you get think behind. you,
0: and so the best malevolent character <laughs> always think that they're doing uh, everybody else a favor.
1: Yeah. Well, so uh, we have some pretty good bad guys in this. And oh, some yes. Pretty ancient bad guys, and like, yeah, and, and you know, they uh, without giving away too much, the. I wouldn't call him evil. No, like you really. I mean, who can even get away with an evil character these days? It's so boring. (laughs) Uh, We have two major antagonists in this novel, and the way that they, what they really represent, is this again another technology paradox, which is that every new technology that we build to save the world destroys whatever was there before. You know, uh, you know, I I wrote an entire novella about this called Small Things that was just basically uh, an echo of um, of the heart of darkness, which is about how civilization, the, the act of creating civilization in Africa, in, in that case, is barbaric, right? It's <laughs> destroying, you're destroying culture, you're, you know, this this spread of uh, civilization is a pretty barbaric act to inflict that on people. And, and that's kind of an underlying issue with technology is every time we feel under assault because every time something new comes out, we lose something and we gain something at the same time and everything changes and is destroyed and reborn and that sort of cycle is really what our antagonists represent and <laughs> and and again even to the to the extent like i mentioned earlier you know it, it wouldn't be a big surprise to the listeners that the 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 proponents of sending humankind into war in order to sharpen them and create better technology faster are are the bad guys and and again that's war is the act of destruction but it, it creates so much and it's this horrible paradox right um, and that's really that's the root I think of the antagonists in this novel well for me too one of the things is interesting uh, is that uh,
0: every technology that's the second you create a technology you also create the situation in which that technology fails goes bad or turns on you <laughs> yeah so <The> divergent
1: paths <laughs> the, 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 it burns you or it uh, warms you up yeah you both.
0: create the automobile it Saves millions of people. They are also killing millions of people. Arguably, the greatest killer of mankind in the 20th and 21st century. I'm not sure what the numbers are, but (laughs) (laughs) you'd have to check. It's pretty terrifying. I mean, we're not going on a. We have not yet embarked a war upon auto accidents. I think they stopped that after putting
1: in (laughs) seatbelts. Yeah. Well, you know, the autonomous vehicles might help with that, but, but yeah, it's true. And and what's interesting again is I think this for clockwork dynasty as well this battle between the short, is is a battle between time spans it's short term long term right mm-hmm. you show up with a vehicle and a person looks at that and says well that's going to help me out this week you know and then you look at it over the course of 50 years and it's completely changed the topography of an entire nation right we in the 60s we build all the freeways and we have all the oil stuff that comes to get all the gas in these cars and then like in the scale up of it the huge impact on civilization is long term right but what spurs that are all these short-term decisions like today i need to get to work you know like, <laughs> yeah and 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 that's a lot of times, I think, how technology works. Like, here's a smartphone. Check this out. You can do this and that on it. Well, all right. I want that today. And then you realize, wow, now I've trained my brain to get a dopamine <laughs> boost every time I ch- and I'm checking Facebook every five seconds like like a rat hitting a cocaine button like in a lab, <laughs> right? And it's like, well, there's your long-term repercussion or like you see all the... the Whatever children have now got these virtual social networks that they have to maneuver through during high school, it makes their lives so much more complicated. And you know, it's like, there you go, like, there's the long term outcome. So, there's the civilizational impact, and then there's the individual impact. And I think technology often has very different outcomes.
0: One of the things you have written about uh, quite a bit, I think, I want to reach back to your previous book. Robogenesis. Mm-hmm. This is the sequel to Robo-apocalypse, which, of course, after any apocalypse, <laughs> uh, alas, apocalypse is never the end. <laughs> no. and, and, and you begin this book with, I think, probably the most effective and terrorizing uh, dive into body horror that I have <laughs> ever experienced. And this is because not only is the body violated but it's also the mind and i thought that was this gets back to this idea of the different kinds of intelligence that could exist on this earth and we think that we're born and i think i'm always going to be rick cleffel but hey maybe 5 years from now i start taking prozac and i'm no longer <laughs> the same rick cleffel <laughs> yeah
1: well i think your embodiment affects your your thinking so much right mm-hmm. and so you know, at the beginning of of Robogenesis, which that's a that was a short story I wrote. And mm-hmm. it's in fact in a collection of short stories that's coming out next March called Guardian Angels and Other Monsters. And I just copy edited this yesterday. It's the finally done. Uh, and I was horrified again yesterday. I was reading it and I was like, oh my God, Daniel, this is so horrible. I hope that there's some, and there are some nice stories in there that are slightly, but it's a real nadir in terms of uh, just... Making you think about how far do you have to go before you don't consider yourself human anymore mm-hmm. and 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 can you make that a positive thing? you know can you is there a moment when you leave behind your humanity and you embrace something new and you're happy about it you know um, you come at, to that you're at peace with it you mm-hmm. know and and that's a long voyage you know that's an, at the end of Robve Apocalypse some soldiers, some dead soldiers were mounted by these mobile exoskeletons called parasites that reanimated these corpses right um The problem is that not all the soldiers were dead, and some of them live on f- with their bodies mostly dead but penetrated by these horrible machines and and that's the that's the short story and the and that's the journey that that character takes throughout that novel, which is where he comes to terms. With the fact that he'll never be accepted by humanity again, and that he has to continue to learn and grow, right, and and become whatever it is that he is, and, and I think I don't know that's that's one thing that's amazing about the hum- humans, you know. I think they're very adaptable, and I think that it's a, we can we can just sort of learn to deal with amazing things, <laughs> and in a way we're doing it with all the technology that's around us. It's changing what it means to be a person, right? Mm. I mean. I and especially those of us who live through some, you know, like all of us, <laughs> live through the changes. You know, we may have had grandparents who were around before there were really automobiles, or, or you may have people like me. I'm I'm like 39, and I was around in high school. We did not have cell phones, and then afterwards we did. I was around before the internet, and now we have the internet. And you realize, like, uh, this is changing the definition of, of what it means to be a person. You know, um, and we just adapt to it, right? well think i mean that the idea of a friend i mean
0: yeah. the, you could never uh, up until say 1980 which is <laughs> when uh, email became and news groups started to fire up you, friends were generally local yeah. but i think now it's uh, it's really
1: uh, established friends can be anywhere yeah well i'm pretty simple with my friends <laughs> like <laughs> like i don't know i try to keep it simple I got like two friends, you know. They're like <laughs> okay. I, and we hang out a lot and that's basically it for me. After that it's a big it's a big uh a long distance to second place, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got the guys they come over every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like I walk up the street and have a beer with my buddy on every Tuesday, like that's <laughs>
0: Now, um one of the things I have to say when I read the Clockwork Dynasty, I was riveted by it and it just played like a movie in my mind and all these great historical scenes with this, there were some amazing battles with this Patna of weirdness that you've added. <laughs> uh, ha, has that been an uh, option for a movie? Where And Robo-apocalypse and Robo-Genesis, where, where sure. are we with all these?
1: Yeah, so Robo-apocalypse, uh, you know, five years ago it was about to go into production mm-hmm. and then it got delayed um, at the last minute and, you know, that was just kind of that. I didn't really hear much about it, but I have to say, like about a year, you know, not nine months ago, not quite a year. Uh, I got a call from Amblin, and they said, "Hey, like, start paying attention. You know, we're we're taking another look at this. You know, we're getting it's getting back. So, so there has been progress on Robopocalypse, oh, and I have watched. Uh, I've been again." Swept up, older, wiser, <laughs> quieter about it, you know, <laughs> into kind of watching this this film get back to being in development. And I'm, I'm very excited by the direction that it's taking, but, you know, cautiously optimistic. And, you know, Robopocalypse was an amazing story because I wrote uh, 20,000 words, I wrote 100 pages, and then it sold to DreamWorks, Steven Spielberg. And then it sold to Doubleday and Random House the the two days later, you know. And it was this amazing situation that doesn't occur very often. And then Clockwork Dynasty. I wrote 100 pages of it, (laughs) and I was like, what the hell? Let's try it again. So, like, we we went out with it to Doubleday, and they were kind of cooking up. My editor there, this is my fourth novel with with Jason Kaufman, and I love working with him. and So I knew he was going to come... At some point with some offer and we would get this deal get this show on the road. But again we we went ahead and sent it to Steven and we sent it to some other people and then we got another preemptive deal. And so Fox uh, bought the novel or optioned it. Again two days before I managed <laughs> to sell it to Doubleday. <laughs> um, which is not bad timing. I mean That's it very good. it helps a lot to, oh, yeah. to have a studio behind it. And so um and so the studio has been following my progress very closely. And, and right now, Fox is, is working on it. I'm talking to the executives there often. And again, it's very fun to be part of this process you know, and, and watch this happen. And, you know, I was at San Diego Comic-Con um, and, you know, we have all these, you get to know all the other authors that are in the same, you know, that are at Random House, right? Because mm-hmm. you all get to go to the same party. And, and they, ask, you know, sometimes you get got to blurb each other's books. And so I blurbed a couple of little-known books like before they were out, um, this book, The Martian, <laughs> and this book, Ready Player One, you know, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm having dinner at, at Comic-Con with Ernie Klein and Andy Weir, and I'm just like, they're just, the conversation, I'm just like, oh guys, this looks like it would be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like such a lot of fun, um, and you know, so I, I have high hopes. I really hope that they that these films come together because it looks like a real hoot. But, um, you know, so far I'm I'm on the outside with my face pressed against the glass just looking in. <laughs> uh, so,
0: uh, what this famous John Borman film. What was it? We are the ones how, who will watch while you entertain uh, Zardoz. Zardoz. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the people are all pressed against the glass oh, looking. Yeah. <laughs> in. Now, uh, where will you be with your next book,
1: Past, Present, Future? With my next novel? Yeah. I'm not totally sure what the next novel is going to be. I have lately, it's very odd, but I've been getting, I, I just have my email out, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the, I have my email it's available. Anybody can email me. I'll email you back, mm-hmm. like probably, unless you're obnoxious. And like, that's never been a problem. But lately, I've started to get this deluge of emails from people going, all right, it's time for Robo-apocalypse number three. <laughs> <laughs> like... Finish up the trilogy, dude. <laughs> like we've waited a couple years; uh, it's time. And then people are like, "Why is? What's this other novel?" <laughs> so I'm I'm really contemplating going back to Robo. I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, but then again, this is an epic world in the Clockwork Dynasty, and of course, I have a million other ideas. So I don't know what my next novel will be. Um, but I I do know that I'm gonna write whatever I'm passionate about and most excited to read and that's not hasn't failed me so far. <laughs> the new novel by Daniel H Wilson
0: is The Clockwork Dynasty. Thank you for joining me, Daniel.
1: This was awesome. Thank you.